for so many years, we've been told it's not personal. It's just business. We are emotional creatures. And one of my most hated sayings on the planet is control your emotions or manage your emotions. And my view is stop trying to control your emotions, feel them, acknowledge them, label them, name them and label them, and then decide how you're going to react to them. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. When people hear the term negotiation, they usually think of these tense arguments and nerve-wracking meetings. To think that negotiation boils down to whether someone gets the better deal of the bargain is to operate from a place of scarcity. Today's guest, Christine McKay, will be the first to tell you that negotiation doesn't have to be a win or lose scenario. It's not about winning. It's about building relationships and being curious about your counterpart. Christine is the founder and CEO of Venn Negotiation, a company through which she turns clients into world-class negotiators. She has worked with roughly half of the Fortune 500 companies and negotiated on behalf of hundreds of small and mid-sized businesses. Before becoming a negotiation powerhouse doing billion-dollar deals, Christine had to overcome adversity. She was homeless, on welfare, and a single mother. On top of that, she struggled with alcohol dependency. Against all odds and the prediction of many people, she got a scholarship from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and later earned her MBA degree at Harvard University. In this episode, we discuss her journey from a homeless person to a world-class negotiator, key mistakes people make in the negotiating process, and the mindset and steps that will make you a negotiator extraordinaire. Christine's story blew me away, and I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Christine has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. She's sharing her free report, Why Not Ask? 16 Ways to Get More, which outlines proven strategies for getting the most out of your negotiations. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 90. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Christine McKay. Well, hey, Christine, it's so good to have you on my show. Thanks for joining. Hey, Justin, so excited to be here. Such an honor to be here for you and for your audience. Really looking forward to our conversation. 
Well, this is going to be fun because, well, first of all, we were recommended by a mutual friend in Brandon Fong, who speaks very highly of you. And uh, what an incredible guy he is doing some awesome stuff in the podcast world and impacting millennials and just is a natural speaker (laughs) and communicator. The guy's great. He is. Agreed. I agree 100% with that. Yeah. Well, It's fun. I love getting recommendations from people and we caught up a little bit here off air and I'm just so excited about the show. Just I can already sense and tell the type of person that you are, that you legitimately love what you do and helping people. And I think it's neat to have someone on that, you know, your your title, by the way, is really impressive, right? A global business negotiating strategist, a world-class negotiator. But at the end of the day, you teach skills that are imperative for anyone and everyone. doesn't matter if you're in business or not, especially if you're in business. But negotiation 101, that is most interactions that we have, right? Or at some point across any day, we're going to have some sort of negotiation with someone. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that I hear entrepreneurs say sometimes that just scares the daylights out of me is, I don't negotiate. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're negotiating with everybody, your employees, you're you're negotiating with your customers, your suppliers, your partners. I mean, it's just, you're constantly in a negotiation. Every relationship is negotiated. Yeah. And the foundation of the way that you look at negotiating is, is what I've taught people for decades, which is that negotiating is a conversation. It's not one person against another person. It's not me on this side of the table and you on that side of the table. And we're going to see who comes out victorious. It's very much, it should be, or or a successful negotiation is when you kind of sit on the same side of the table and you have a, a dialogue and it's not about winning. It's about finding an outcome that feels great where everyone walks away saying, this is good. This is a great partnership. So it doesn't need to be adversarial or confrontational the way that some people make it out to be or the way that some people, I guess, do it, you know, negotiate that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I love what you do. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yes, absolutely. I mean, I always say that negotiation is a conversation about a relationship and you cannot win a relationship, but you can get more value out of them. And sitting down, I love that you say sitting down on the same side of the table. That's my favorite place to be with somebody that I'm negotiating with. The challenge is, is that so many people have been taught that negotiation is you're negotiating against somebody. And it is this adversarial thing. And and we see it in the movies and we see it in the media and we see it in politics. And, and you see executives talking about it in that way. But oh my gosh, what what happens if we if we take that language away and we we sit and we go, how do we solve this together? Um, my attorney friends laugh at me because I say that negotiation is a hopeful act, and they're like, "What the heck are you talking about?" But attorneys, <laughs> for attorneys, it's not a hopeful act. For attorneys, right, they're trying to keep you out of jail and out of court. And you know, once you get to that level, they're like. It is. You You either go to court or you don't. You either get sued or you don't. There's binary outcomes in that profession. But as business owners, our world is not binary. It's so multifaceted. 
And there's so many amazing creative opportunities for us to create more value for everybody. And we use information from the past to figure out where we're at today so that we can divine a future that's better together. And it's really that hope of what that future relationship is going to be like that causes us to enter into agreements with people in the first place. And you're never entering into agreements with companies. You're only entering into agreements with people. And when we look at individuals and we negotiate with a person instead of an entity or a country, it changes how we have that conversation entirely. Yeah, that, that's profound. And I wish more people understood that so we can just have this great, you know, I guess, conversation back and forth and just make it a little bit smoother, more comfortable. To me, it is comfortable. I think to you, it is likely also very comfortable. I, I think mm-hmm. that's where we should be. I've got a, a silly example for you, but I want to make a point by it. And that is this, when I go out for a date with my wife, we could sit across from each other and face each other. I actually like to sit kind of on the corner, like she's on one corner, I'm on the other corner, really close to each other. So it's like we're together, or even if we're talking about, you know, something, because to me, there's this like, what do we call it? Like the subconscious communication or the the communication of body language, right? It's nonverbal cues, like so many things exist. And so even in sales and a sales capacity, meeting with people, I really do try to have that kind of like corner approach where it's not being across the table. I was that, it's so funny you say that because I love, I sit that way with my husband too. And I was at a meeting the other day and, you know, I was leading the meeting and people usually expect me to sit at the head of the table, which I never sit at the head of the table or sit in the center on one of the sides. And I sat at the here's the end of the tables and the, the head of the table. And I sat at the seat right next to it. So I have this amazing view of all the participants. I can see everybody. I still have the ability to kind of direct and influence where conversation is going. But most importantly, I have the ability to see everybody. I get to see how people react to different things and being able to be in an observant position without being in a dominating position is I find to be very, very useful in negotiation. And it's something I learned very early in my career, working mostly in Southeast Asia. And I've just taken that with me everywhere. That's awesome. Let's uh, let's go beyond. So you went back early in your career. Let's go earlier than that, because from my understanding, you were at one point in time pregnant and homeless at 19 years old, which had to be just an incredibly scary time or situation. Un- unsure, you know, may- maybe you're more confident than the rest of us. I feel like at that point in life, <laughs> you know, about to be a parent unsure where you're going to kind of settle down. That has to be uncomfortable, nerve wracking. I'd love to hear how you kind of got to that spot and then how you got beyond it, because now you're conquering the world of business and, you know, you're working with fortune 500 companies. It's really amazing. I would say in general, what you're doing is amazing, but, you know, being on the outs, you know, being down for the count, like you were, and then to come back as, you know, the underdog, that's what really shines to me. Oh, thank you for that. It was, I mean, so I was 19, I had kind of, I'd done a year of college 
I started hanging out with, you know, fraternities and sororities. And I honestly started drinking too much and, and behaviors just kind of unraveled. My life just kind of unraveled. And, and I did find myself pregnant and I had just lost my job and I got evicted from the trailer that I was living in. And, you know, I lived kind of as what we in the United States call as part of the hidden homeless. So I didn't always live in the back of my, stay in the back of my car. I did a few times, but I mostly couch surfed a night here, a night there. I had no address and you couldn't get on assistance on welfare when you have no address at the time. And so I was like eating a can of soup a day and I lost tons of weight. And as I kind of came, I got finally got a job at McDonald's and I lied to them. Well, I felt like I was lying to them because I didn't tell them that I was pregnant, which just ate at me and just like practically destroyed me. And I remember very vividly the day that I told my manager that I was pregnant and I was sobbing just uncontrollably because I thought they were going to fire me. And gratefully they didn't. And that allowed me to find a place to live. And I met this woman named Roxanne Yukin, who's no longer with us. And she changed my life. She challenged me to write down a goal. And the first time I went to the welfare office, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go to Harvard. And they laughed at me and I laughed at me. And then I doubted, started doubting myself. Roxanne had helped me feel confident and gave me, even in my condition or in my situation, feel a level of surety about myself that just was completely zapped away from me when I went to that welfare office. And so in that doubt, I decided to abdicate my life to somebody else and I gave somebody else decision-making authority over my life. And I had three kids at the age of 22 and my husband at the time, he couldn't support us. And I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to go to school, but I was going through the garbage can to put gas in the car. I was doing my grocery shopping at a food bank. I was leaving the oven open in order to put heat in the house. And I finally, one day I couldn't feed one of my kids. And I was like, I've, had enough. And, and so I took a risk and I went to, I got into a community college and, and uh, then got a 4.0 and a full scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, decided it was going to be easier on my own than with him and took my kids and we left. And from there, I was able to land an amazing job with what's now Verizon. And uh, I met the man of my life, the man of my dreams. And we're, we've been together for almost 30 years now. And, and then I started in international mergers and acquisitions. And that's where I started to really hone my negotiation skills. But it was that, that journey where I had to learn how to ask for what I wanted, not just what I needed, because we're, we're taught not to ask, we're taught to give, but we're not, we're not taught how to receive very well. And so I had to learn how to ask for what I wanted because I didn't, I want, I wanted more than just to get by. I wanted more than to just be another, you know, statistic on the welfare rolls. I wanted more for myself. I wanted more for my children. And so I set about creating it. And 11 years after I told that welfare office, I was going to Harvard. I started my first year at Harvard University for my MBA program and um, and graduated two years later. So it, it it was, you know, it's been an amazing journey. And the things that I've learned along that path have really informed how I negotiate. 
what it, how I come to deals, what I'm willing to look at. And, you know, when somebody says, you know, is everything negotiable? And I'm like, pretty much, except for my values. Mountains, oceans, and waterfalls are not negotiable either, but, but they are navigable, right? And it's because I've come from that journey that I've seen what's possible. So many things are possible that we cannot conceive. And really effective negotiation is about being curious enough to explore what those possibilities are. That is just an incredible story. So inspiring. I just am blown away, Christine, to go from homeless to getting, you know, a great job to then getting into Harvard, not just Harvard, their MBA program. And then on top of that, starting your own company, a mergers and acquisitions company. So becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, that is a full 180. And it's so neat. And I got it, by the way, I have a uh, confession to make. I got a bunch of friends that graduated from Harvard. I don't think I ever stood a chance of getting in. Maybe I could finagle my way into, you know, one of their programs now that, uh, you know, it's like a two week or a four week program, something like that. But uh, I always wanted to have one of those Harvard shirts, but I didn't feel like I should buy it because then people would think that, uh, you know, I went to Harvard, but I always love when people wear it. I think it's such a cool shirt. So I just thought I'd throw that one out there for you. I think it's hugely aspirational. So for people, I mean, it, you know, it's a it, it's a hard school to get into. And uh, I love it when I, I get all excited when I see people wearing Harvard gear and all that. I think that's awesome. So I think you should get a Harvard shirt. <laughs> I like it. Well, I figured the closest that I was really going to get is just to have a bunch of friends that went to Harvard. And I'm really good with that, too. They're all really smart. So, uh, yeah, that's cool. So you then have this mergers and acquisitions company and, you know, you start working like who was your first client? What did that look like? What did that grow into? Because at this point you have done negotiating, you know, some form of negotiations with half of the Fortune 500 companies which is really just remarkable to even have the ability to have access, let alone actually transact deals or do some sort of consulting with them. I mean, we're talking about the 500 largest companies in the United States, which you know just shows how relevant what you're doing is. But I'd love to know like what that first company was like and then how you grew because it had to be nerve wracking at first, like throwing out offers like, you know, I, I hope they take this or I hope I sound professional or like I know what I'm doing here. Because at the beginning, people don't have the confidence that you get only through experience. You can fake it, but you don't really have it. At least that's been my experience. In full transparency, I mean, I, I got to cheat a little bit because I started working for uh, Deloitte Consulting after I graduated from Harvard. And so I got to borrow the credibility of somebody else, which I think is a huge thing that entrepreneurs don't think that they need to do, right? When you're starting out as an entrepreneur, you don't have that credibility. Even no matter what your pedigree is in the background and in your history, you still, you're out there selling to clients, right? And it's, you have to borrow somebody's credibility. And so I borrowed credibility, but within Deloitte, I did things that other people weren't doing. So I recognized that there was an opportunity. I was working on the largest mergers and acquisitions deal in Canadian history. And I was working on that. And I, somebody said something about contracts. And I was like, 
they can't do that with a contract. For some reason, I had gotten to see this agreement and I was like, they can't do what they think they want to do. And so in that moment, I decided I was going to create a new offering within Deloitte. And I had a partner. I remember his name. I remember what he looks like. And he's like, nobody will ever buy that. And then a few months later, I'd sold almost $18 million worth of business on this thing that I was told nobody would ever buy. And what I learned, and, and as I was working with these big companies through Deloitte at the time, started to see how smaller businesses, small and mid-sized companies were at a huge disadvantage. I taught myself how to read contracts. I am not an attorney. And you know what? The thing is, is that many small businesses get a contract and they go, they hand it off to their attorney. And I'm like, most of what is in that agreement, your attorney doesn't understand because attorneys are not business people. And the vast majority of what's in a contract is business related, not legal related. And so I created a methodology for how to look at contracts, how to assess value, how to assess risk. And when I left Deloitte, I was like, geez, I wonder if anyone would hire me to actually start going through these contracts. And the first company that hired me was a company that was a spinoff from a large technology company. It was a $120 million revenue business. It just sold just recently. And, you know, they grew to over $200 million in revenue. And when I was working with them and establishing their contracting practices, and I was negotiating with pretty much every major company that you could name, I've negotiated with them in some capacity. And I got so aggravated at these huge organizations, these enterprise companies would slide a contract across the table and say, you know, sign here. And I'd say, that's not how we do this. And they'd say, well, we don't negotiate with companies your size. And I'm like, it's a $120 million company. It's not like chump change, right? Like, we don't care. We don't negotiate with you. And so I started to create a way of approaching these businesses, knowing that that's what they were going to say, and then flipping that and essentially doing a judo flip on it and, and saying, no, that's not, we're, we're going to, we're playing, we're changing the nature of this. We're, we're not playing this the way that you, this game, the way that you want to. And so when people talk to me now about what do you do? I'm like, I help people understand when they're being had, when they're being played, and then what to do about it. It's like one thing to know I'm being played. And then it's like, okay, now what am I going to do about being played? And what's my response and reaction going to be? And so we level the playing field for our clients when we do that. And it's pretty exciting. And it's not just in mergers and acquisitions. We work with customers and suppliers too, really kind of helping those smaller organizations level the playing fields. I have a client right now who's selling their business and they thought it was worth X. They thought they'd sell it for X. And we're about to close the deal at almost five times what they thought it was going to be worth and what they thought they'd get at it. And that's what I love to do. I'm a magician at helping people find more value in their relationships. Oh, I love hearing that. That is just fantastic. And interesting beyond all belief, Christine. It's funny because when I was in college, I went to the University of Illinois and Deloitte came on campus and did this thing. 
it was like a consulting program as college students. And so I actually thought there was a chance I may end up working with Deloitte. I really enjoyed that program and consulting kind of, let's call it mini consulting. It was just a cool experience to kind of work with them and work with their team. And so I thought that that might be the direction that I went. And I had some friends that ended up doing that and all had great you know things to say about working there at Deloitte. And in fact, the building right next door to me, literally like I can look at it from here out my window is Deloitte here, downtown Austin. There you go. Yeah. It's, I learned so many things and met so many amazing, amazing people. And uh, it is a very valuable experience. I walked away with a lot of very valuable experience. So. Yeah, you know, and it, it's it's great when you have expertise where you can really offer tremendous value. So one of my private clients was in the process of selling his company and wasn't sure really what, you know, at first unsure if he wanted to sell, then unsure if he wanted to sell everything and at what value and just through some simple tweaks to an agreement, just some simple mindset shifts, we were also able to increase the sale of his company by over $40 million, which is significant. And by the way, it was simply this, like, I mean, the the biggest thing that was the, the shift was, well, what do they want? Like, what's the most important thing to them? Because when we have clarity around what they value most, and we can offer that up, then generally they can be a lot more negotiable on the other terms that might be more valuable to you. And I think most of the time you're not going after, it's it's not the same terms that each side values. Usually it's different terms. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and some experiences you've had there. Absolutely. For me, there are three basic steps to every negotiation. You have to assess, ask, and then act, right? Those are the three things. And, but assessment, people get hung up on it because they'll kind of think about what they want, but they actually usually only have a superficial view of what it is that they really want. So they haven't actually, they don't have clarity. I love that you use the word clarity. They don't have real clarity on what it is that they want. And then you have to have, you do have to have an understanding of your counterpart. You have to be able to assess what you think your counterpart needs and wants to be successful. But you also have to assess situation that you're negotiating, right? If you are in supply chain right now, right? If you're doing anything with supply chain, you have to assess what the existing situation is related to the current issues going on in the world over supply chain. I had somebody who was in my, who's in my network who two weeks before the pandemic, before California shut down, he signed a 10 year commercial lease on restaurant space didn't assess the situation very effectively, right? So you have to assess yourself, you have to assess your counterpart, and you have to assess 
the situation. But the problem is when people assess their counterparts, the whole idea is to develop a set of assumptions. And I'll ask people, when you're at the negotiation table, who's the most important person at the table? And people will say, well, I am, well, I am, well, I am. And I'm like, no, because you should know everything there is to know about you when you get to the negotiation table. You know, all you have are assumptions about your counterpart. And it's about testing your assumptions, evaluating what you thought was right and accurate with what's really right and accurate, right? Asking really effective questions that gets you more information because no matter how I'm a very transparent negotiator, I joke with people that I'm negotiating with. And I say, if you literally read my book or watch any podcast I've been on, you will know exactly how I negotiate. And I am super transparent about what I can and can't do, what ranges are. I I just find that cutting to the chase just makes it so much easier. The challenges is that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Most of my counterparts have been taught that if they're negotiating for something, it's worth a hundred. And if they give me 10, there's only 90 left for them to have. And if they give me 60, there's only 40 left for them to have. So they've lost, right? And, you know, people have asked, well, what do you think of win-win? And I'm like, well, let's play this out. If I say stop, you say go. If I say left, you say right. If I say yes, you say no. If I say win, you say lose. Win-win is not a natural concept. So if we think about, and there's actually research out there that shows that hundred that people think they're negotiating for is actually more likely to be 142. There's usually roughly 42% more value available in any business deal than we actually think there is. So instead of negotiating for that 100, let's explore and discover what the other 42% of value looks like and how do we both get to partake in that additional value as well. And that changes how you think about that conversation, but you can't get there if you haven't really taken time to understand and evaluate what's important to your counterpart. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the Lifestyle Investor Community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. 
I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turn 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Yeah. And that really doesn't matter with like the size of a deal. Like these are just foundational, you know, concepts, regardless of, you know, maybe when you first started it, you were in the thousands of dollars and then the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I know you worked yourself up to doing a deal that was $2.4 billion. So you've done billion dollar deals, you've done thousand dollar deals. It's so important to recognize, to, to be curious and to figure out what people want. What are they after? And the way I can see you having more like 142%, it's like the, you know, when, when you have some sort of negotiation, you've got this other company, you've got this other business. I mean, there are just so many other levers that you can pull where it adds value outside of the immediate transaction that it's in, or it's even relationship capital where you create a good relationship and then you can do future business. So one of the things that I've learned, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, is the less I try to optimize, like if I'm in this and it's me against you and I'm trying to get the best deal I can, Christine, and I'm trying to max it out, I'm trying to optimize it or maximize it. Well, that does probably create that win-lose situation because I'm trying to win at the expense of everything. But what if the mindset was, hey, let's create a good situation that we both feel great about. If we don't, we don't have to move forward. But I bet we can figure out where we can do that. And I can give where it doesn't matter as much to me and you can give. And then when that happens, there's this aspect of there's like repeat business that can happen. There's this reciprocity that happens. There's this goodwill that happens. And so for me personally, I've just had multiple deals, multiple transactions with the same people because of having a good relationship and trying to create good outcomes. And I'd love to know what that looks like in your world, where are these one-offs or is there more business or is that word of mouth? I, I mean, I would assume that the word of mouth inside of some of these communities is, is everything. The word of mouth is huge and being able to deliver is, I mean, that's just a, a big thing to be able to figure out whether it's an M&A deal like the one I described earlier, whether it's helping somebody who's really out over their skis and struggling to stay afloat, negotiating with their supplier and reducing liabilities by 74% and still keeping them as a supplier and helping that company stay in business for another seven years. They ultimately sold for $150 million to a Fortune 500 company. And so 
It is a combination. So we end up doing a lot of one-offs, but we get lots of, oh my gosh, if you need this, if you're in this position, then you you got to do this. Because we do, a, uh, you got to talk to Christine, you got to talk to Venn Negotiation, because what happens is that we come in and we often work with people who are in distressed relationship situations where they've tried and it's just not getting anywhere. And the relationship is now kind of buckling or where you've got somebody who's perceived as having a lot of power or leverage, which that's always an interesting conversation because in my personal view, everybody has power and leverage that's roughly equal unless you choose to give it away. And that's a conscious choice to say, I don't have power. I don't have leverage. Well, you're choosing to give it away. There are always alternatives in the market that give you power and leverage if you understand what they are. And we have a lot of partnerships. I do a lot. I love working through CPAs, actually, and CFOs. In larger organizations, CFOs and COOs, those are the ones who are living with the deals, right? So they get to see all the ugly warts. They get to see that, oh my God, sales sold this deal and it sucks. It's like not profitable. This customer is like hounding our customer service people. People are quitting because of this particular customer. We've had to change our standard operating procedures. Oh my God, they're influencing our strategy now. What the actual heck is going on here? We can't keep doing this. And, you know, that's because kind of sales and procurement kind of work in a backwards way. They get contracts too late in the process and sales is thrown out price without really understanding what the cost of servicing that customer is going to be. And so we come in to help in those distress situations a lot of times when somebody's beating their head against the wall and it's battered and bruised and bloodied and they're like, we can't fix this. Because one of the challenges is, you know, a lot of people think when I'm doing speaking, I'll ask people who loves negotiation and invariably hands get shot up like really, really fast. And I'm like, you probably are not very good at it because people who are really good at negotiation actually don't love doing it a hundred percent of the time. There are times when it's really nerve wracking and the, and a good negotiator is going to say, I love negotiating depending on the situation. As a negotiator, I don't always love negotiating. I would never ever want to negotiate a hostage situation. I don't ever put me in that role. I would suck at that, right? Because I actually love emotion in negotiation, right? Emotion, we're such emotional beings that I would lose my mind if I had to negotiate in binary situations. And I'm always trying to fix things and find creative ways. And that's why I love business negotiation because it's it lends itself to like hyper creativity, whereas hostage negotiations or situations that where there are binary outcomes don't let themselves to hyper creativity. So yeah, so that's kind of how we we work. People bring us in. CPAs, CFOs, COOs are primarily where we come in through. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, when I think about some of the groups and companies and people that I've negotiated with over the years, generally we can get to a good point. Sometimes it is really difficult to get a deal done without having a third party 
or a couple of third parties that can kind of help with the communication, especially if it gets emotional, especially if, if there's, you know, it's personal. Maybe you started this company and so you're emotionally attached to it. So it becomes hard to let it go in the moment. I mean, there are a lot of things, you know, partners that, you know, have basically a bad breakup. There are a lot of these, but, you know, even with companies that say that they don't negotiate, it is totally not true. They all negotiate. And if you ask the right questions, and if you develop a good relationship with the people that you're negotiating with, there is room to work because they do also want to get a deal done. Now, they probably want to get it done on their terms, but if they really want it bad enough, then they will, you know, they'll be willing to massage the terms. And I think it's important to know that. And then it's something that, you know, you've said, which I agree with is this whole idea of empathy that uh, that's like one of the superpowers in negotiating. Obviously, it's a superpower in a relationship. And you've talked about how negotiations is a relationship, right? Negotiating with someone that's a relationship with someone. So, you know, by proxy, you know, having empathy is going to help that cause. And I'd love to hear you talk about that a little more. I think it's huge. And, you know, for so many years, we've been told it's not personal. It's just business. Well, I call bullshit because it is personal and we are emotional creatures. And one of my most hated sayings on the planet is control your emotions or manage your emotions. And my view is stop trying to control your emotions, feel them, acknowledge them, label them, name them and label them. And then decide how you're going to react to them, right? For example, I was on a call, this was a few months ago, and it was kind of astonishing, but you see a lot of women in academia who teach negotiation, but I rarely encounter women at the table with me once in a while, but not as often as I would like to. And so I was negotiating with this guy, we were on Zoom and he, he made a sexual comment followed immediately by, I don't understand why anyone would ever hire a woman as a negotiator. Well, I can tell you, I started to feel something. (laughs) I'll let you figure out what I was feeling, but I started to feel something, right? I noticed that I was feeling it. And I said, all right, I'm feeling this way. This is how I would typically react in this situation. Will that serve me right now? No, that won't. So what are you going to do instead? What action are you going to take on this feeling, right? But the feeling is important because it informs it informs a whole lot of aspects, a whole lot of things about what this relationship is going to be and going to look like. So instead of reacting to this person who was clearly trying to get me to react, I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, go ahead. What reaction were you hoping to achieve by making those statements? Totally did not expect that. Freaked him out. I I called him out, right? But I gave him an opportunity as well. It wasn't just like I was like, you're an ass. I was like, without saying you're an ass, you're an ass. But I gave him an opportunity to do something different with it. Mm 
right? And by giving him an opportunity, giving him a shovel to dig himself out of the situation, we were actually able to move forward with that conversation without any animosity whatsoever. And it gave me a great story, right? Because that stuff happens all the time. There is no way that we can be in a situation where we're talking about things that are important to us. As soon as we want something from somebody, our emotion is immediately engaged before our mouth ever is engaged. We react, we feel emotionally before we can react logically. It's just the fundamental way of the the way the brain works. So acknowledge that you're feeling something and be transparent about it. I have literally said in negotiation, well, that thing you just said, actually, I'm feeling a little frustrated about that because of these reasons. Now, I'm not sure that that frustration was your intent, but can we work through that? And by doing that, by being transparent about that emotion and giving my counterpart the freedom and the latitude to do the same thing with me. So I pay very close attention to how somebody reacts to something I do or say, and I'll actually say, I'm not sure that hit the way that I intended it. Did it land in a different way than this was my intent with that statement? Did it land that way or did it land some other way? Right now I'm giving my counterpart the opportunity to say, yeah, no, that did not land the way that you intended it. All right. How do we work through that? Right. We're problem solving together. And and if we can problem solve at an emotional level like that, using logic to frame our emotions, to help us establish what the next steps, next right action is going to be. Oh my God. We've just like completely opened up a totally different world of what that relationship can be like. And that is what's exciting to me about the work that I do. That was such a clutch question that you asked in that moment, which I think has many applications, but wow, way to turn that around, right? What were you trying to accomplish When you made that comment, I love that. I feel like that has so many legs, so much usefulness. Something else that we both think is really important, and I'd love to get more of your perspective on it the nonverbal cues. There's so much communication that happens outside of the words, and we both know that often the words are not true, they're not an accurate representation. A lot of times, people are literally just playing lip service to whatever they feel in the moment they need to play lip service to. So how are you assessing, you know, in person, I think it's uh, often a lot easier, but we live in a, a Zoom world or a virtual world where we have to be able to assess this either way. A lot of it probably translates through pretty similarly, but I'd love your perspective here because I think this is part of what makes you a great negotiator is that you can pick up on these cues and you can use those to your advantage. And by the way, when I say use them to your advantage, use them to create a successful partnership, right? Uh, A successful transaction. So it's not like you gaming them. It's you using tells to help get the thing done that everyone wants to get done. Well, most people go into negotiation believing that their counterparts are out to screw them over. So If you know that, and as a negotiator, I know that everyone that I'm engaging with, I have to assume that they think that I'm there 
to act not in their best interest. So part of being effective at negotiating is getting them to get to the same side that you are so that you're not sitting across the table, right? And that you're bringing them. And, you know, the nonverbals are huge. Listening is, I always say it's a full body activity, right? Listening happens with more than just your ears. It happens with, like, if you're in person, if somebody walks into a room with a certain scent, a clone or perfume, the kind of scent that they wear communicates something about them. It's a nonverbal clue about who that person is. The clothes that somebody wears communicates something about them. I mean, I dye my hair funky colors. I mean, that's, this is actually really tame right now, but you know, and I've done this for 23 years. I've colored my hair fun colors because it communicates something about me. It also is a little disruptive. It disrupts and changes how people think about what a negotiator is supposed to be like, but our nonverbal cues tell so much about us. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Paul Ekman, who really pioneered some of the early research in microexpressions and how every human being involuntarily contorts our faces into certain looks that represent specific emotions. I was working in Panama City, Panama, and I was negotiating with a large global bank and a regional bank who was buying the global bank's operations. And we walked into the negotiation. I was the only non-Spanish speaker in the room. And they looked at me and started to communicate in English. I'm like, what in the heck are you negotiating in English? I'm the lowest common denominator in this room right now. Do not negotiate in English just because there's a lone English speaker here. I have a team of people who are all Spanish speaking. So please negotiate in Spanish. I'll actually observe a whole lot more than you actually think I will, right? And it was amazing what one person might look at as a handicap turned out to be hugely beneficial to our team because I literally could pay attention to micro expressions. When somebody would say something, I could tell if somebody thought had total contempt for that person. I could evaluate how the other team worked and what they thought of each other, not just what they thought about what we were proposing. It added so much texture to the conversation. And we were able to debrief in a very different way. I would, cause I would like, you said this thing and I, and I know enough Spanish that I could pick up on keywords. You were talking about this and boy, this person did not react favorably to that at all. And my teammate would go, oh my God, I totally, totally miss that, right? And we were able to come up with different sets of questions that then we could ask to probe what about that was uncomfortable for that person or what was contemptuous about it, right? So nonverbal cues are huge in negotiation. The problem is, is that we don't give ourselves the opportunity to pay attention. Even when we're talking, right? If I'll do an exercise and when I'm teaching, I do an exercise where I'll have usually the most talkative person in the group ask a question. And then that person can't say anything for three minutes. 
Usually by 30 seconds, that person is fidgeting in their chair. By a minute, they're practically leaning. There's like so far leaned in, they're leaning over the table. They start at two minutes. They are like going crazy. If they can last that long, they're mouthing words by that point, right? And then invariably, somebody in the group waits until that two minutes and 30 seconds before they actually offer input into the conversation. And if that person who asked a question had opened their mouth, we would have lost the value of that last person's contribution. And that's how I feel about negotiation, that ability to, and I tell people, cross your fingers, you know, cross your fingers. If you got something to say, sit on your hands, do something physical to restrain yourself from saying something. I'll still sit in a negotiation and cross my fingers to go, okay, I got to shut my, I got to shut up. I want to say something, but I'm going to shut my mouth right now because that last 30 seconds is a huge component. And so reading nonverbal cues and giving space, the value of the language is in the silence in between the notes, the value of music, right? Listen to the silence between the words that are being said, because that's where the richness of the value of that conversation sits. That's very insightful. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, and you said this about your hair. So I love all the micro expression stuff, Christine. You were talking about your hair, and it made me think of just this whole concept of pattern interrupts. So you show up looking different than what someone expects you to look, and that interrupts their way of thinking. And there are also these things that we can do in a negotiation where we can disrupt. So maybe if tensions are kind of rising, one of the things I like to do is, is add some humor, kind of just lets the, the tension out, kind of lets the air out. What are other strategies or pattern interrupts that you have seen work or that you utilize and teach people? I like to have a little like inflatable ball, not a big one, but a little one that I'll just kind of tap across the table to somebody and people just like, or what the heck was that when we're in person? And then we'll play a little bit when we're on zoom. It's a little bit different to do some of that. One of the great things about zoom and to be honest, because I do, I've done a lot of negotiation with large companies, many large enterprise companies have distributed negotiation teams. So I've actually been doing negotiation on video conference or audio for years and years and years. But Zoom is actually a great equalizer. And, you know, we're all the same height on Zoom. There's no intimidating personality that's towering over me because I'm actually short. So, you know, somebody walks in who's 6'5", and I'm like, oh, crap. You know, it's like there's that big personality. And that big personality, that essence of somebody who walks in, you know, the people who walk into a room and suck the oxygen right out of it, right? You don't have that on Zoom. So Zoom is actually a huge equalizer. Cloudflare did a study of its people to see what the impact of Zoom Zoom was, and they found that it was an equalizer for women and people of color to have greater opportunities to speak up. But having pattern interrupts on Zoom, there's all the things you can put, you know, pig ears on and funky hats, and you can do different things like that, changing your background randomly, doing a moving background, um, things like that can be useful to help to alleviate tension. 
you know, having gone to Harvard, where we obviously studied the book Getting to Yes a lot since it was written by a bunch of Harvard professors, they talk about going to the balcony. And one of the things to do for a pattern interrupt is simply to take a break. I am huge on doing breathing exercises. And I do a Qigong practice all the time and have a master instructor. And that's huge for me before I do any negotiation. I carve out the half an hour before I go into any conversation so that I can do breathing and meditation so that I'm in the right frame of mind. And if I need a pattern interrupt, I'll use the effects of Zoom. I'll use going to the balcony to take a break. Or I'll use a question. I'll, I'll pull a question that's completely random and completely off topic. And I've done that before where I actually bought two cars. I walked into a dealership one year. This was a number of years ago. And I made an offer to buy two brand new cars, but I was only going to pay for one of them. And tensions ran really high with the manager. He was really ticked off at the, he was, you know, feigned being very insulted and very, you know, offended and all that good stuff. And it was a Friday night and it was date night. And I looked at my husband and I was like, it's date night. It's time to go. I'm, you know, I'm done being at a car dealership on a Friday night. And then I looked at the manager and I said, well, you're working on Friday night. You must have tomorrow off. What are you doing this weekend? And turns out he was going to, he ran dog sleds and uh, he was doing a dog sled race. And I was like, oh, I'm from Montana. We talked about the Iditarod winner and we had a poodles and poodles were controversial that year. And, in, in, you know, they banned him in the Iditarod and, and it was a total pattern interrupt. And then we were able to build a different kind of a relationship so that I could come in and say, so now what are we going to do about these cars? Here's why I think it is actually a good deal for you to sell me two cars for the price of one. And I walked him through my math and I was wrong in one part of my math. So I made adjustments. So we bought two brand new cars for the price of one plus $5,000. But that you can use effective questions as a tool for pattern interrupt as well. That's incredible. I'm going to need to have you teach me that trick. (laughs) I like that. You know, I was actually just told that story at an event and there was a guy who owns multiple dealerships in the audience and he came up to me after and he said, you could totally do that. He's like, I totally, yeah, totally doable. So I love it. And I I love your whole idea of, of Zoom being the great equalizer. I think a lot of people probably didn't look at it that way. And I don't know if I ever looked at it that way, but it sure is. I mean, that that is very wise. I love it. So, Christine, tell us a little bit about your book. You've got a great book out, Why Not Ask? And then tell us a little bit about Venn Negotiations and Venn Masters, because I want people to be able to find you and find what you're doing. Awesome. So Why Not Ask is a book that just, it literally takes that Harvard to homeless and beyond story and is is super practical. And it's a very conversational book, a very easy to read book about my philosophy on negotiation. There's just lots is full of tips and and things that you can apply the moment that you read the book and that's hugely important to me that you can take action on what is talked about in the book and so i'm super excited about it we're getting ready to release the audiobook this next month and so it's i'm just i love it and so you can check it out 
available on Amazon. And then Venn Negotiation, we do training programs for individuals and businesses. We have two major programs. One is Negotiation 101, The Basics, which is a two-day event that we go through kind of all the specifics of negotiation. It really builds on this concept of helping you not get played in your negotiations. So we tell you the games that people play in a negotiation so that you can unravel them. Things around, you know, talking about anchoring and as a game and mirroring as a game and good cop, bad cop as games. And what are the games people do? And what are some of the things you can do to help diffuse those things? And then our Venn Masters program is a very, it is a practice intensive program. It is all about getting feedback and doing negotiation, getting feedback feedback on your negotiation because you know we all learn to negotiate when we're little kids seven-year-olds are the best negotiators on the planet but there's research that shows that starting at eight we quit asking for what we want in certain situations and we don't have people telling us we assume that if we get a signed contract that that means i successfully negotiated but in three years when that deal is killing your profitability and killing your people was it really a good deal did you really get to evaluate how effective you were at negotiating or not? And the answer is probably no, you, you didn't get a good, good chance to evaluate its effectiveness. So the, our Venn Masters program is really about taking pragmatic uh, negotiation skills and tactics and applying them and getting direct and immediate feedback on that. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm excited to share some of this in the show notes. I think this has been just really an outstanding show. I want to thank you for your time and your expertise and your wisdom. This is just so much fun. And we're in so much alignment in just negotiating in general. And I've learned some really cool stuff today from you. So thank you. I want to wrap things up today the way I do every single session uh, that we get together. And that's this. What's the one step that you can take today to move towards financial freedom and towards really a life that you desire that's not by default, but by design. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.